Okay, good morning. So last time we looked at uh, five questions. Today we're going to look at the sixth question in the same chapter, don't be gullible. Question number six, I'll read, uh, I think we'll follow the same pattern that we did last week. I'll read the question, I'll answer the question, and uh, we will have uh, comments from your side or uh, any further questions based on this. So the question is, this is question number six in the book. We need discernment in appraising the science and wonders movement. Does it square with what the Bible teaches? Okay, let me first define for us what a miracle is. A miracle is a supernatural event which has no human explanation. More than that, a miracle is a supernatural event which suspends natural laws that we have. The question that we need to ask this morning as uh, William MacDonald raises is, should Christians today expect that kind of miracles? A lot of programs on television, they come and say, this is your day of miracle. And uh, they also say things like, every one of you out there should expect your miracle today. Is that right? Should Christians expect miracles on a daily basis? Let me also take you through uh, different periods of biblical history and what happened then to see uh, when miracles were performed and when a lot of miracles together were performed. Some people make this statement. They say that every page of the miracle, uh, I'm sorry, every page of the Bible has a miracle. No, that's not true. When you look at the entire Bible, uh, you actually see that there were relatively three brief periods of biblical history when miracles were performed. And these periods were, uh, there was a proliferation of miracles in these three periods. Uh, the three periods would be the time of Moses and Joshua. Then it was the time of Elijah and Elisha. And then thirdly, the time of Christ and his apostles. Now, none of these periods lasted more than 100 years. But in all these periods, you can see that there were a lot of miracles performed. Now, why did God perform miracles in these three periods of history or biblical history? Number one, I think miracles introduced new eras of revelation. Miracles introduced new eras of revelation. For example, in the time of Moses and Joshua, you had the law that was given, a new revelation that was given. You have the Mosaic Covenant being instituted, and you had people going into the Promised Land under Joshua. So because of that new revelation, there were a lot of miracles, like the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the, the dividing of uh, River Jordan, the falling of the walls of Jericho, all of those things. And then you have the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, again, a proliferation of miracles there. Then you have the third period, which is the time of Christ and the apostles. So you had three periods of new revelation, new uh, eras of revelation being given. And uh, that's why I think miracles were, uh, miracles were there. They introduced new eras of revelation. Secondly, miracles authenticated the messengers of revelation. That's exactly what the New Testament says, particularly in reference to Christ and the apostles. They authenticated the messengers of revelation. Thirdly, Miracles were designed to call attention to the revelation that God was giving, particularly to, to the gospel message that was going out 
in the first century Greco-Roman world. Now, in the book of Acts and Epistles, the vast majority of uh, miracles were performed by the apostles and their close associates. Paul gives us the reason why he performed those miracles. He says in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, he says, the things that mark an apostle, uh, signs, wonders, and miracles were done among you with great perseverance, he says. So the signs and wonders and miracles were the marks of an apostle. If every believer in Christ was equipped with the ability to perform signs, wonders, and miracles, then signs, wonders, and miracles would not be or could in no way be the identifying marks of an apostle. In Acts 2.22, Luke says this, that Jesus was accredited by miracles, signs, and wonders. So similarly, uh, the apostles were marked with uh, these uh, miracles as genuine messengers from God. Acts 14 verse 3, it describes the gospel message being confirmed by the miracles that uh, Paul and Barnabas performed. So does God keep doing miracles even now in the same way that he did in these three periods of biblical history? Is there a need for such ongoing miracles to substantiate the Bible? Uh, should everybody claim a miracle on a daily basis? Does God do miracles on demand? Uh, the answer to all these questions would be no. Nothing in scripture indicates that the miracles of the apostolic age were meant to be continuous. In fact, let me quote uh, one theologian, B.B. Warfield, who said, when this revelation period closed, the miracle, uh, the miracle working period had also passed as a matter of course, is what he says. So they were confined to the apostolic period. Uh, this is not a normative thing in the church life today. Uh, God does perform miracles here and there, uh, often to the, uh, often to the surprise, the pleasant surprise of the missionary who has gone to a field perhaps. But uh, it is not a normative thing in the church as it was in those three uh, periods of biblical history. If you look at the uh, epistles and, and the book of Acts as to yeah. the ones that were written earlier versus that were written later, uh, I think it's also a fact that you don't see a lot of mention of miracles or pretty much any mention of miracles in the later Epistles. So even in scripture, there is a, the evidence would suggest that that age of miracles, which, you know, the Lord told his disciples that they would, uh, you know, miracles would follow uh, or they would do all these things like, like uh, the things that are about uh, the snakes and scorpions and whatnot. Right. When we look at the later epistles, uh, they really don't see that, right? So maybe you can just comment on that a little bit. Yeah, uh, I think I will talk more about that in the next question because it talks about tongues, which is also a revelatory gift. So I think I'll mention all of that, Roger. Is that okay? I think I would say one more thing, though, that um, if, um, uh, and maybe Rabbi Chan, you know, I, I don't think we should hold a position that, uh, yeah, one second, that we should hold a position that says that God may not um, choose to use it again. For example, if you look at your three, uh, you know, three um, uh, reasons here, right? Introducing a new area of revelation. Certainly there's no new revelation. But uh, authentication of the message, there might be places and uh, uh, certain people who need some authentication um, through a miracle. In that case, God is certainly, uh, you know, uh, capable of doing that. I don't think we should close to that, uh, uh, you know, that uh, possibility. Yeah. Uh, but, but the sort of season of abundant miracles where there are miracles happening all the time and 
uh, as a common occurrence, I think, uh, you know, clearly both history and scripture sort of indicates that those, that's sort of behind us, right? So maybe Richard can talk a little bit from his perspective because he's been in some of these places and maybe witnessed some of these things, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a different uh, perspective. Yeah, I, I feel that when the messenger comes with a message, especially in a new culture or a new place, uh, we, we probably might observe the Lord confirming the messenger, the message of the messenger through such miracles. Uh, we hear of uh, a lot of such stuff from Muslim lands. And in fact, um, I work with somebody here who actually saw uh, some things. And when I, when uh, later on, when, when he came, when I was explaining Revelation, he says, I saw exactly this. This was what I was ex um, explaining to you. So um, the Lord gives such um, such uh, visions, maybe uh, works such miracles in the lives of individuals that He wants to um, bring the light of the gospel. Uh, yeah, and and maybe just to add to that, to be ab absolutely clear, which I is talking about is and and what the signs and wonders movement. Okay. Are two entirely different things, so we have to we have to distinguish between the two, yeah. yes. right? Uh, what the signs and wonders movement is sort of advocating that signs and wonders are normative in this day and age, and 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 they have specific powers that are given to, or there are specific powers given to specific individuals to, um, you know, to um, um, you know carry out signs and wonders or whatever, right? And miracles. So we have to make sure that we are, we are distinguishing that the signs and movement that's embodied in this question is basically sort of saying that uh, you know the uh, this should be an everyday occurrence as you said it should be it's common just as it was common in the time of Jesus it should be happening now as well uh, sure that we, we understand that I think uh, to summarize what George and Rebichan and I were saying so far in one sentence it would be that God can and does perform miracles in his sovereignty but it is not a normative Christian experience like it was in the apostolic times or in the three periods of biblical history that we mentioned. Uh, hi, Devendana, Rujit here. Yes, go on, please. Uh, uh, yeah, so let me just ask, like, so these TV shows we see mostly by the Pentecostal groups, you know, people uh, being cured, you know, people flying here and there. So is that all, can we confirm that this is not a setup or some of it is true? Like, how do we uh, see that as... Okay, um, we talked about this last week um, that um, uh, there was an HBO that uh, documentary that was done on one particular faith healer. And he uh, allegedly performed about 76 miracles. And the documentary producers went on to ask the names of all these 76 producers so that they could go and verify if the miracles were indeed real. 13 weeks later, the ministry of this person who supposedly performed all these miracles sent out just five names. And uh, when, they, when they went and investigated about these five people, all of them were not uh, genuine healings. All five of them were not genuine healings. Uh, particularly heartbreaking was the news of one person, Ashmel Prakash. I mentioned this. He was a 10-year-old boy stricken with about two brain tumors. 
And uh, despite the healing, supposed healing that was pronounced by the faith healer on that person, and also given the fact that uh, his parents made a pledge, pledge of thousands of dollars uh, to the ministry, the child died seven weeks later after the crusade. So I think uh, most of the healings that are performed, supposed healings that are performed in these crusades are what is called psychosomatic healings. And uh, Rabbi Chen talked about that last week. I mentioned that as well. And uh, we also talked about something called placebo effect. Uh, we defined what placebo is last week. And let me just mention that once again, that uh, it, is, it is not something that will bring a real effect in your life, but it is something that will bring a psychological satisfaction for you, often to the point of making you feel as though you're healed. For example, if, uh, if I'm addicted to crocin um, and, uh, and uh, without crocin, my headaches won't go at all is what I think and have fixed about it in my mind. Uh, even if headache could go without a crocin, I would want something like a crocin as my pill, which is a placebo for, for the headache to actually go from my head because that's how I'm conditioned. That's how my brain is conditioned. So all these kinds of placebo effects and uh, also psychosomatic healings are what are done in those large, huge crusades. Uh, I, would say, I would say that um, all these supposed miracles need to be medically verified by a medical practitioner. Uh, the danger in this, once again, I'd like to repeat, is that uh, if your disease or illness needs a constant medication, and you don't take it, especially things like diabetes and all such things. Uh, they, could, they could be even uh, graver chronic diseases that need medication. And if you stop taking that, that would be to your detriment. Um, so, so we should be careful about these things. Uh, the scripture clearly says that miracles were to attest the revelation that, that God was giving. Miracles were to attest the person who was bringing in that revelation. That is, the, that is Christ and the apostles and all the people that we mentioned. And so... Uh, we should not think that miracles, signs, and wonders are the normative experience of the church life today. Yeah, fine. Thanks. Beyond the two reasons of psychosomatic and the placebo effect, do you also think that there could be a satanic influence in healings? Just the way that we see, you know, people like Simon the Sorcerer, you know, do miracles in terms of magic is what it's mentioned there. But see, the reason I'm asking that is because when you move beyond so-called uh, Christian faith healers, there are also, you know, gurus from other faiths who seem to be having powers or claims of having, you know, of performing miracles and things like this. So if, if that be true, then is it possible also that a lot of people who are claiming to do things in the name of Christ are actually, actually doing it by satanic power? Um, yes, it is possible. There is a definite possibility in that because uh, demons do have higher powers than human beings, although they are not omniscient, they are not omnipotent. Uh, the Bible does talk about Satan having certain powers because after all, at the end of the day, he is a fallen angel. Um, so it is possible that these people are, some of these people, I wouldn't say all of them, uh, some of them are certainly outright fakes. You know, it's, uh, you have uh, their own staffers standing there in the crowd and they would come up and testify. All such uh, drama does go on in certain ministries. But I do also think that in certain ministries, they do invoke the demonic powers and everything. And uh, that is a very dangerous thing. Mm. So, um, Raven, yes, now, Jason. Uh, just keeping aside the... Uh, 
you know miracles that happen on crusades and you know all of these preachers let's keep that aside but uh, you know if you look at uh, in, uh, some of uh, the uh, believers per se uh, who believe that uh, the lord would uh, bring healing and and uh, they you know they go on i mean you, we, we see a lot of testimonies uh, uh, and and some of them are personally verifiable i mean we know that you know it's, it would be one of their neighbors friends or some somebody like that yeah and and uh, what do we how do we uh, discern whether uh, this is by the lord or you know or some other way okay because uh, so if that is a case so my question leading my point leading to that question is that does it mean also to say that uh, their faith levels are higher and hence you know because of their uh, exercising of their faith they've got healing or is it because we don't we lack faith in, in what we are asking and hence uh, we don't see such wondrous uh, healings happening in our midst i mean i'm not uh, talking any de- denomination per se but just generally you know let's take it at people level okay i think that's a very good question jason um that's why last time i uh, defined the differences between what is the gift of performing miracles and interceding for healing these are two different things right the gift of uh performing miracles or the gift of healings was seen in the book of acts very clearly now once again i would like to uh, bring about uh, this uh, acts chapter 3 and what happened there luke writes that uh, peter and john were going to the temple called beautiful uh, and uh, there is uh, there is this uh, lame man who was uh, who was crippled from birth who was seated there and he expected to get something from peter and john and peter understanding that he looks at him and says gold and silver i don't have but what i have i give you in the name of jesus christ of nazareth get up and walk and the bible says now for example if you if god forbid but just an example just whimsically if i have a broken leg and i'm in a cast for about 3 or 4 months and then after that although i've walked well all my life after 3 months when my uh, leg is healed i'll have to go through physiotherapy for me to walk properly once again now notice here in this case he is a man crippled from birth he had never walked but the moment uh, peter says in the name of jesus christ of nazareth get up and walk the bible says if you read the text further he leaped to his feet and he ran into the temple now that is the gift of healing the gift of performing of miracles uh, you see the same thing you see peter shadow falling on uh, on the people who were uh, standing next to him uh, although the text does not clearly say say that they were cured but it is perfectly all right looking at the context to assume that they were all healed based on peter shadow in acts acts 19 if you go on further uh, paul's aprons paul's uh, handkerchiefs were taken and placed on the people who were uh, sick and they were all healed uh, that's that's the gift of miracles that's a gift of performing healings which is different from interceding for healing we all do that again we have a prayer group and on a daily basis we get prayer requests you know i have a headache i have my son is not well my parents are not well all these prayer requests these are intercessions for prayer and god in his sovereignty chooses to answer those prayers that's one thing second thing is i also want to say that all genuine healings come from the lord all genuine healings come from the lord whether it is through a means like uh, by taking a medicine or through a surgery going to a doctor 
or uh, some kind of a physiotherapy uh, or even a miracle that the Lord performs. Uh, all genuine healings come from the Lord himself. But there is, a, there is another point to it that Rabbi Chen was mentioning last time about, uh, you know, uh, two demons playing off against each other. You know, it's, I, think, I think I'll leave it to Rabbi Chen to explain that. Uh, you also see some kind of a hierarchy in the demonic world based on the Bible. And so I'll leave it to Rabbi Chen to further explain that. Well, I think I don't have much to add to that. You know, uh, the kingdom of Satan is divided and one of them might be more powerful than the rest. And you see all sorts of things among the, um, I would say Gentiles, but you know, Hindus and Muslims, there are lots of people who go to a particular Tantri or whatever you call it and gets, um, gets a healing or inflicts a, a sickness on someone else. And the one who is inflicted goes to, the, uh, goes to another one. And if that, if that person has more power in their perception, um, there is more uh, harm being returned to the original guy, etc. So there's a lot of demonic play out there. We don't need to analyze all what's happening there, but uh, when you come across such stuff, understand that it is definitely from the evil one and have nothing to do with it. Yeah. We don't but need Jason, to deny it have happened or not happened. Yeah. But Jason, to your point, uh, I think for every genuine healing and miracle that the Lord brings about, either directly or through any means, we should genuinely praise God for it because all healing comes from Him. Okay, uh, this is a question that I think will also take some time, probably 30 more minutes, and then we'll probably have to log off after this. Uh, it says, a perennial problem facing many believers is judging whether the tongue's movement is according to the word. What do you say? Okay, uh, right. I think I'll take a little while for this because this is a very important thing, and this is something that is pervasive, and we see it all around, and we have questions about it, but we need to understand it biblically. Again, let me go back to what is the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues, as Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about nine gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and one of them there is the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues. What is that? The gift of speaking different kinds of tongues was a divinely bestowed supernatural ability to speak in a human language that was not learned by the speaker. Let me say that once again. The gift of speaking different kinds of tongues was a divinely bestowed supernatural ability or a gift to speak in a human language. Now notice my uh, definition here. It is a human language, intelligible language. But that is a language that had not been learned by the one who is speaking. It is a supernatural ability that has been bestowed upon him by the Holy Spirit. That is a gift of speaking different kinds of tongues. Um, speaking gibberish or speaking some kind of an ecstatic utterances was found in the Greek culture uh, in, which, in which the New Testament church was there, the early church. But uh, the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues was languages, proper, clear, intelligible languages. And Paul talks about that. We don't have time to get into that. But I'll just uh, wait for you, pause for about 30 seconds for all of you to open your Bibles uh, to 1 Corinthians 13, please. I want you to follow along in this text. Uh, and uh, we'll just look at 
what the Bible is saying very clearly. 1 Corinthians 13, in chapter 12, Paul talks about the use of spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, he also compares the gift of tongues with the gift of prophecy. And he goes on to say that prophecy in one sense is a superior gift because it brings edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. And uh, it also lays bare the hearts of the unbelievers who come into the church. But sandwiched between these two chapters, he talks about the beauty and the excellence of love. And in talking about that, come to verse 8, please. He says, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now notice what Paul says. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. I want to explain these three verses for us and, uh, and we'll see what these three verses are saying in their context here because these are very, very important for our understanding of whether tongues as a normative experience do exist right now in the church. There are three things that Paul mentions here, three gifts. He says, gift of prophecy, verse 8, then gift of tongues in verse 8, and gift of knowledge again in verse 8. And notice the words that are used about what will happen to them. Prophecy will be done away. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will be done away. Now, when you look at the original language in which uh, the Bible was written, the New Testament was written, it's Koine Greek. When you look at uh, the Bible in the Koine Greek language, the word that is used for knowledge and prophecy being done away is the same root word, and that is the word katargio. Okay, I'll explain that. And then the word that is used for tongues is a different word, and, and it says tongues will cease, and that is the word pao. If you look at this very carefully, it does not stand out very well in the English language, but in the Greek, it says knowledge and prophecy will be done away, and it's in the passive voice. What is a passive voice? Passive voice is a sentence where the subject undergoes the action of the verb. Or in other words, if I say, I am being pushed by somebody, I'm the subject, and the action is being done upon me, the subject. I am being pushed by somebody. I am being taken to the football field or something. I am not doing the action, but action is being done upon me. That is called passive voice. Um, so... Knowledge will be done away is in passive voice, which means there is something that will come and stop this knowledge or pause this gift of knowledge. Prophecy will be done away. Again, it's in passive voice, which means that there is something that is coming that will stop or put an end to the gift of prophecy. And what is that that will come that will put this gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy to an end? Paul talks about that in verse 10. Look at verse 10. But when the perfect thing comes, so Paul is talking about a perfect thing that will come, that will put a pause or an end to the gift of word of knowledge and the gift of prophecy that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 12. Because if you notice very clearly, verse 9, for we know in part, he's talking about knowledge, for we prophesy in part, he's talking about prophecy, and when the perfect thing comes, the partial will be done away. The word done away in verse 
10, is also the exact same Greek word that Paul uses for knowledge and prophecy being done away in verse 8, which tells me that out of the three gifts, knowledge, tongues, and prophecy that Paul mentions, knowledge and prophecy, the gifts of word of knowledge and prophecy will stop because something else is coming that is going to put an end to them. And that is the perfect thing that Paul is talking about. Now, we don't have to get into an explanation of what the perfect thing is and how we arrive at it, but I believe it is the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, so when the new heavens and the new earth or the eternal state comes, the gift of word of knowledge and the gift of prophecy will be done away or cease. Okay, now coming to tongues. Paul says tongues will cease. And the Greek root word is the word pao. And that word, interestingly, is used in the middle voice. Now, we don't use a lot of middle voice in the English language, uh, but middle voice is a very common thing in the Greek language. It's like saying, for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'll first define what middle voice is, and then I'll give you an example. The middle voice is the subject of the verb performing an action upon itself. In other words, I'm saying, I appointed myself to the task. You see that? I am doing a, an action upon myself. I appointed myself as the captain of the cricket team. So that is the middle voice where the subject is performing, subject of the verb is performing an action on itself. So that is the Greek word in the middle voice used about tongues, which tells us that there is not something that is coming to stop tongues, but tongues will be stilled by themselves. Tongues by themselves will stop. That is the, that is the interpretation of these three verses. So Paul again, just to summarize, is saying knowledge, prophecy and tongues are there. The gift of word of knowledge and the gift of prophecy will stop when something comes and stops them. And that is the perfect thing. And the perfect thing I said is, I believe, uh, looking at the context of it and all of that, I believe it is an eternal state. But Paul is saying that something else does not need to come for tongues to cease. It's a different word. It's in the middle voice, which means tongues will be stilled by themselves. Tongues will cease by themselves. So, from this context, at least we do know that the gift of knowledge and the gift of prophecy will go on till the eternal state comes, but tongues will be stilled by themselves. But we need to be honest here. We are not told when the tongues will be seized by themselves. But when you look at the evidence of scripture and also of church history, it does indicate that tongues may have most probably, and notice my language here, may have most probably seized in the apostolic age itself. Why do I say that? Now, the gift of tongues was also a miraculous, a revelatory gift. And I said, uh, and George and Rabichan also confirmed that, that the age of miracles and revelation ended with the apostles. The last recorded miracle in the New Testament, it occurred in about 60 AD. Uh, this was the healings on the, Isle of, uh, the island of Malta. Remember, Paul goes to the island of Malta uh, and uh, there was Publius, his name is, and he was the leader of that island. And his father was sick. He had fever. He had dysentery. And Paul goes and prays for him. And Paul performs that miracle on him and he, he, get, he rises to his feet. And then you also have uh, the, the, the episode of the serpent. Remember, they were, they were trying to set a fire there, have a small, uh, 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 have a small uh, fire there because it was very cold and um, and there's a serpent that uh, gets entangled to Paul's, uh, Paul's hand. And uh, all of the locals say, you know, look at the fate that's happening to him. Although he survived the shipwreck, 
uh, fate has caught up with him. That's why a, a very poisonous viper has and you know, got entangled to him. He's going to die. But a, a few hours later, they see that nothing happens to him. And they go on to say that he's a god, perhaps. So that is the last recorded miracle uh, in the New Testament times, especially in the book of Acts. That happened about 60 AD because I say that because it, it's 60 AD because Paul then goes on to Rome. And then uh, towards the end of the book of Acts, he's seen in the first Roman imprisonment, which ended only in 62 AD, which was, which, which was when he was released. So I would say in about 60 AD, you have the last recording of, uh, or the recording of the last miracle in the New Testament. From 60 AD to 95 AD, when the last book of the New Testament was written, which is the book of Revelation, for about 35 years, there is no miracle recorded. Miracles like the gifts of tongues and healings, uh, they are not mentioned in the later epistles. Uh, miracles and the tongues are only mentioned in 1 Corinthians. In fact, uh, if you look at Pauline chronology of his writing of epistles, you have the first epistle that was written in 48 AD, by, uh, which is Galatians, first epistle written by Paul. And then you have 1 Thessalonians, a very early epistle, about 50 AD. 2 Thessalonians, immediately 51 AD. And 55 AD, and no later than 55 AD, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Immediately later, uh, Paul writes Romans. And then a little later, during his first Roman imprisonment, Paul writes Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, Philippians, all those things. Uh, he does discuss gifts there, especially in Ephesians and Romans, but he does not mention the miraculous gifts. And by the time uh, the book of Hebrews comes, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, let me read those verses for you. Uh, this is what Rabbi Chan was uh, talking about Hebrews 2 verses 3 and 4 how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at first spoken through the Lord it was confirmed to us by those who heard uh, now notice verse 4 God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders by the various uh, miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit done according to his will already by the time the book of Hebrews was being written which is about you know, you could say between 65 through 68 AD, you know. Uh, around that time, the writer to the Hebrews was already talking about miracles as past you know, as having happened in the past. So uh, the apostolic authority and the apostolic message needed no further confirmation. But I would say before the first century ended, uh, there was a good circulation of the New Testament. Uh, it was uh, circulated across churches around the first century uh, Roman Empire, where wherever there was church was, I think there was some copy of most copies of Paul's letters and the Gospels and all of that. And so uh, there was no confirmation further that was needed uh, by the use of tongues or miracles and all these things. One more point about tongues, and uh, and then uh, I think perhaps I'll leave it open to the questions or further comments. Notice what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14. Again, he's talking about tongues. I'll wait for you for about 10 seconds to Open your Bibles once again. 1 Corinthians 14, I'll read from verse 20 through 22. Paul says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. Now, let me uh, explain this verse and then move on. Um, Paul says, Paul is telling the Corinthians, do not be children in your thinking. He's asking the Corinthians to be mature in their thinking. Don't be children in their thinking. Okay. Uh, I have a son. Uh, he is one and a half years old. Now, 
if I place a hundred rupees, a, a toy worth hundred rupees on the table for him, that is very glittery, very attractive. On the other hand, I, I put a stack of money, a lot of money right next to it. I can tell you 99 out of 100 times my son will go and catch or hold that glittery toy. Why? Because he doesn't know the worth of money that is right sitting right next. Just whimsical example okay? Uh, that is sitting right next to the toy. But he's just looking at the glitteriness of the toy and, uh, and the sheen of the toy. And he is thinking that that has greater value. So Paul is exactly talking about the same thing to the Corinthians. Just because tongues and all of that, they make a lot of noise. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of glitter and sheen in tongues. Don't think that there's a lot of value in that. Paul says, be mature in your thinking. But in regards to evil, you and I as Christians need to be infants. But in our thinking, we should be mature. All that glitters is not gold is what Paul is saying here. But notice what in verse 21 he says. In the law, it is written, uh, Paul is saying law, but he is quoting uh, Isaiah 28 here. By men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, I will speak to these pe this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, notice the st statement, tongues are a sign not to those who believe, which means tongues are not a sign for believers, but to unbelievers. But prophecy, on the other hand, is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. What is Paul saying here? Paul has just now said that don't look at the glittery things on the outside and think that there is a lot of value in that. There are other things that have a lot more value. So be mature in your thinking. And then he quotes the book of Isaiah, verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. What is happening in Isaiah? Isaiah has gone and talked to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, often called Ephraim in, in his language. But he's talking to the northern kingdom of Israel saying that if you don't repent, if you don't turn back to God, there is a kingdom that is coming that will invade you. And these people, although uh, Isaiah spoke to them in intelligible language, Hebrew language that they, could, that they could understand, they rejected the message of Isaiah. So God is speaking through Isaiah and saying, I will bring foreign tongues into your midst. Notice this. By men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, I will speak to this people. So in 722 BC, we know from history, biblical history, 722 BC, the Assyrians came and they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And what happened then was they spoke foreign languages that, that the Israelites could not understand. The language then was unintelligible to, to a Jew who was there. And, and uh, Isaiah was saying that God is going to do that as a judgment upon Israel for having rejected the message of God. So when a clear, intelligible message was given to them in the Hebrew language and they rejected it, God was going to bring foreign tongues into their midst as a sign of judgment. And in other words, God was going to speak to them through foreign languages because, of, uh, because they did not believe. And yet, even then, when God brings judgment, they would not listen to me, is what Isaiah says. That exactly Paul is quoting, and he is bringing it forward into the New Testament. And he says, tongues then are a sign for, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Which tells me that although the gift of sign had a revelatory purpose, and we talked about that, when the tongues were being spoken, by the way, uh, it is intelligible languages, 
tongues were being spoken in the nation of Israel, I think it is a warning that a judgment is coming upon them for having rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. And I think that judgment came in a very fierce way in about 70 AD when the Romans general Titus came and uh, just raised the city, burned the, uh, burned the second temple and the temple was destroyed. So uh, it is also a sign of judgment. It's a sign for unbelieving people, not a sign for believers. On the other hand, Paul says prophecy is a sign for believers. And if you read the chapter, it says that, you know, you must, uh, you must actually desire the gift of prophecy because it brings edification, exhortation and comfort to men. One of the greatest uh, theologians of the Eastern Church, a man by the name of Chrysostom, and the greatest theologian of the Western Church, Augustine, these two, these two great uh, theologians believed that, um, uh, in fact, they considered tongues as obsolete. Uh, it, it had passed. So God can most definitely give a person the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues, I'm sorry, uh, the enablement to speak in different tongues uh, and uh, he can make a person communicate in a language that uh, he did not hitherto learn. But the fact of the matter is that's not a normative Christian experience once again. But, and God does not seem to be doing that uh, in, in a normal, on a normal basis. That's not the normative experience of the church again. Uh, but tongues did seem to occur and they did occur in the first century. And I believe... Uh, Right, right when the time that Paul was writing the prison epistles and all of that, just before that, the tongues may have ceased most probably. That would be my answer. Hey, Raven, uh, uh, let me just add a couple of things. Uh, very good, uh, very good and thorough explanation there. Um, just one, one point I'll make on your, uh, I do agree with you on the perfect thing being the eternal state, but maybe you should just acknowledge that there is a difference of view. Oh, um, sure, yeah perfect state is among people. That, that, I, I don't want to get into an explanation of that, but some people teach that the, it's the completion of the word of God. Uh, I personally don't think that matches the text, uh, but there are people who believe that. We don't need to dispute that. The point is that, that the, what the perfect thing is does not really impact the teaching on the tongues, right? It's, it's just about prophecy and, and knowledge. Um, the, the other point I'll make is that it's very clear that tongues as it's defined, the gift of tongues was the gift of languages, speaking in other you know, proper languages that, that, that the person, the speaker did not know. But um, it's also obvious that what the charismatics do today is not that. I mean, none of this, uh, what they say is really uh, almost you know, 100% of the time is never an actual language. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the actual language, as you explained it clearly, I think you just laid out uh, very, very clearly from scripture that, you know, there no longer is a need for it. Once a need was passed, um, you know, it, uh, it passively just stopped, right? Or not passively, but it, by itself, that, yeah. by itself, it stopped, right? And if you look at history, we can see that, that uh, you know, and the, 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 the epistles that were written later, there's no mention of it. So, uh, it's a very valid uh, conclusion that it did stop, right? And then obviously uh, we see this sort of sign gifts sort of being revived when the charismatic, so-called sign gifts, and the charismatic movement came into, uh, into force in the early part of the last century, I would say. So, yeah. but what, what I believe a lot of charismatics say is that what they do, which, which sounds to us 
as gibberish, right? It's just sort of unintelligible words, mumbling, repeating words. Uh, what they do is teach, which I think, again, there's absolutely no scriptural base for. They say, well, that's not the gift of tongues. Gift of languages probably is a better term than gift of tongues. But it's actually a private prayer language or, you know, there's only one verse in scripture they go to, right? It's a verse that says, if I speak in the tongues of men or the tongues of angels, right? So, uh, so what they refer to that tongues of angels as being the gibberish uh, that they speak, right? So, so they do approach it from a slightly different angle. Uh, but uh, clearly there's no biblical support as such for a private, you know, gibberish type prayer language that certain people have and, and that we receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So there actually is a lot of confusion because they say that you speak in the gibberish tongues when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, right? But uh, that's clearly not what Acts teaches us, right? When, uh, when, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they actually spoke in the uh, gift of languages and they exhibited the gift of language. Yeah. Uh, like George and uh, rightly mentioned, um, you know, there is no gibberish in the New Testament at all. Uh, and people who come and say that what was being spoken in the Corinthian church was gibberish have the burden of proof on them to prove that it is gibberish because it's the same word that is used in, in the book of Acts and in, uh, in 1 Corinthians. It's glossolalia. It's, it's speaking in tongues. So, so the point there that Paul is trying to make is that Paul was not saying that you guys were speaking gibberish or anything. Paul was in fact trying to say that you, know, you need to regulate tongues for that period, he was saying, you need to regulate tongues because there are other gifts when you come together as an assembly. Uh, and he talks about the disadvantages of tongues. For example, he himself says, I praise God that I speak in, I speak in more tongues than uh, all of you do. But when I, when I come as a church, he says, I would rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words in a tongue. And he also, in the last verse, he goes on to say, uh, he says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Uh, but earnestly desired prophecy. So at that time for the Corinthian church, uh, he was actually regulating tongues, but they were clear, intelligible languages is what, uh, what, uh, what I would say. So, secondly, coming to 1 Corinthians 14.4, uh, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. No spiritual gift is given to any believer for self-edification and never for self-gratification. Um, and never for self-aggrandizement as well. It is, it is for the good of the church. It is for the edification of the church. And Paul is saying, when you come together and you're speaking in a tongue that is unintelligible, somebody else cannot understand, you're edifying yourself. But actually, when you come together, it's for the edification of the church. On the other hand, prophecy is something that edifies because uh, prophecy lays bare the attitudes of your heart and even the attitudes of the unbeliever's heart. And he also gives another example. He says, suppose an unbeliever comes into the church, which is a very common experience, both in the first century and even today. We have a lot of unbelievers Sunday after Sunday coming into a church. And if everybody is speaking in tongues or in languages that he doesn't understand, he'll think they've gone bad. That's exactly what Paul says here. But on the other hand, if there's a gift of prophecy and everybody is speaking the word of God and talking about sin and the atonement for sin and the fact that we cannot save ourselves uh, we cannot rise above our rebellion unless God himself comes to our rescue and all of those things. His attitudes, the attitudes of his heart will be laid bare and he'll fall flat saying God is really in their midst. So Paul is talking about the supremacy in one sense of the gift of prophecy. 
and he also is saying that uh, tongues is not for self edification it is any any gift for the for that matter is for the edification of the church uh, so one related question from uh, the same passage see if if paul is addressing them and saying that for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to god indeed no one understands him he utters mysteries with his spirit does it not seem to indicate that there is a language in which a believer can converse with god which god will understand but others may not and therefore in that context you know paul telling them that however that's not edifying the others so i'd much rather that you not do that but you do something which edifies everyone uh so does it does it indicate that it is unintelligible language or does it indicate that uh it is something that you know only god understands and others don't and therefore maybe differentiates it with the tongues that was spoken of earlier see good question um uh, jerry a natural a natural reading of the text would tell us that again it is an intelligible language it is not an unintelligible language or gibberish or some ecstatic utterance that uh that paul is talking about here all that paul is saying here is uh he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to god and he because in in um, in spirit he utters mysteries is what he's saying now like i said the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues is a special enablement endowment given by the holy spirit to speak in a language that we did not learn so paul is talking about a genuine gift of speaking different kinds of tongues there For example, if I was in the Corinthian church in the first century, and if I was speaking in a language, nobody around me would understand what I'm speaking. If I was speaking German, for example, okay, uh, nobody would understand around me uh, what I was saying in German. But only God would understand because God understands all languages, and that's why He says in spirit He speaks mysteries, which means that others cannot understand uh, what I'm saying. That's all He's saying. He is not talking about a private. unintelligible tongue or gibberish or ecstatic utterance that is not a language yes tina yeah, yeah. yeah i had one question um so i was thinking how will speaking in a foreign language strengthen me in the sense uh, if you look at it as a language that is you're not comfortable with and and the spirit has endowed you with it mm-hmm. for the purpose like um at the beginning of the book of acts how people hear the gospel in their language right mm-hmm. so um i would think that was the purpose so how does that edify a believer um okay yeah very good question tina uh, excellent question in fact yes ravichan i will take this up a little bit sure 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 um you know first corinthians is written to correct what was wrong in the practices there so uh, when you look at tongues definitely it was practiced in a wrong way and paul is trying to set right what is wrong there and uh, paul may not actually be buying into the arguments that they are presenting and he might even be talking to them uh, at at that level uh, people claiming to be talking mysteries it is between me and god and i can speak this other kind of arguments that they probably put forward and he's uh talking to that and maybe uh they might also have been saying um there's a lot of edification i'm building myself up so that's another argument that they bring forth and 
he's answering those questions and saying, um, let's not bring all this uh, speaking of tongues into the uh, church and cause a lot of disorder and confusion uh, during our meetings. If you look at it from that perspective, Tina, I think um, uh, you might have a better glimpse of what uh, Raymond was trying to say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you, Ramsey. Um If you if you look at the entire book of One Corinthians, just a general uh, outline of it, One Corinthians chapters one to six, the household of Chloe has gone and talked to Paul about some of the divisions in the in, in the Corinthian church and all of that. So six chapters were devoted to uh, addressing that issue about the unity and all of that. Chapter seven and on, when you look at it, Paul says, now about the things that you have written to me. So uh, before 1 Corinthians uh, was written, the church actually wrote a letter to Paul asking him to address certain questions. From chapter seven through chapter 15, talking about the resurrection and all of that, uh, he is addressing questions that they had written to him. So it is very much possible, like Rabbi Chen said, that they asked him about tongues and prophecies and all the nonsense that was happening in their church. And he's addressing uh, some of that very specifically. Secondly, uh, uh, every epistle is an occasional document in the sense that uh, there is an occasion or a problem in a church that necessitated the writing of that letter. And unless we were there, we would not exactly know what was happening. You know, it's like listening to one side of the telephone conversation and trying to make up uh, and understand what's happening on the other side, perhaps. But, you know, uh, based on the letter and based on the Holy Spirit's illumination, we can as best understand uh, as we can by the grace of God, what, 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 based on the answers that are being given in the epistles. So we don't know exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. But we can think based on the answer that Paul is giving that there was an aberration of tongues and there was a misuse of tongues there. Got it. Thank you. Yeah, there's a question here on the chat. Uh, so can we speak in tongues in our homes? My mom still debates with me about this, uh, the angelic language. So should we necessarily speak in tongues as well? Uh, so brother or sister, uh, we already mentioned that uh, the tongue, the gift of tongues does not exist most probably. So it ended in the first century. So I don't think even at homes we can speak in tongues as a normative experience. So because the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues does not exist right now. Now talking about the angelic language, uh, that's only mentioned in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. I think George and Ray out was, even if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, I think Paul is using uh, a figure of speech there called hyperbole which means uh, it is not a reality, but you exaggerate in your speech to say that even if that were there, then the conclusions necessarily follow. For example, uh, I could say things like, even if I swim all the five to seven oceans that are there, I could not do that. You know, can I swim all the seven oceans? No, it's a, it's a hyperbole. You're exaggerating to make the point. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, even if I speak with the tongues of angels, if such a thing existed, but have not love. I'm like a clanging gong and a cymbal. You know, that's what Paul is saying. One more question here on private chat. Uh, in verse two, how do you explain no one understands them? In your answer, you used your definition to explain the verse. How would you, from the text and the literary, explain that the verse is not talking about unintelligible things? Literary context of the verse. 
this can be answered later now uh, it is the same greek word used both uh, in uh, in uh, acts and in in the book of corinthians as well and uh, no fine commentator today uh, evangelical commentator today uh, says that it is unintelligible utterance that paul was actually talking about um, because uh, it, it is glossolalia there can it be argued that god could give knowledge of a new language unheard of previously to the person to a missionary uh, if the question is can god give uh, the utterance to a person and make him speak in a language or make the missionary speak in a language that he did not learn hitherto the answer is absolutely yes god is able to do that again that's not a I would love to see such uh, gifts among missionaries. I have not come across anybody anyway. Okay. Uh, uh, secondly, you know, uh, what is the perfect of a spiritual gift? It was discussed earlier. This is for the common good. It is not for your own self. So if you're claiming that you're sitting down and you're uttering mysteries in the spirit for your, your own self, that's not a gift. That's something else which is not revealed in the scripture and you're claiming that you have something that's not revealed in the scripture. And um, I'd like to read the last portion of 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, the, uh, this is especially for people who, uh, there are lots of people who come and say that, uh, you know, uh, tongues is the sign that we have the feeling of the Holy Spirit, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you know, there are lots of rhetorical questions at the end. Are all apostles? Answer is no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And it is uh, basically tongues is being uh, claimed as a higher gift. And the answers here is, uh, to, is to say that it is not a gift that is necessary. And it is not even a higher gift. And uh, this is to be exercised with extreme uh, uh, extreme pardon in certain situations. So when you come to 1 Corinthians 14 and say that it is not a gift, but I still practice it, doesn't go in the context. It is presented as a gift. And the discussion is about the gift. So there is no question of you um, edifying your own self, the gift is given to the church for the common good. It's given to an individual for the common good of the church. So uh, Paul is not saying that by a gift you can build yourself up. First Corinthians 14, 4, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. He's being kind of sarcastic. Yeah, if I, if I can just maybe uh, step back a little bit, I think when you look at the context of these First Corinthians 12, 13, 14, um, you know, it's very clear that the Corinthians somehow were very enamored with this gift of tongues, right? I mean, that's why Paul wrote it. And they were like stepping all over each other to showcase their gift of tongues. And even when there are unbelievers coming in, they're speaking the stuff that they didn't understand. Uh, and regardless of everything we've talked about, about whether the gift of tongues is seized or not seized, or whether it's this or that, uh, I think the, the key point there is Paul, if you look at it, he's actually diminishing that gift. And, and several times he says, desire something else. Desire, I wish that you would actually prophesy. You know, you would 
exercise the gift of prophecy rather than tongues. I wish you would not use tongues in this way that you would regulate it. I wish, right? So, uh, I mean, it's very clear that uh, when you look at the focus on tongues among the charismatic movement is, is actually really unbiblical. I mean, it goes against the spirit of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, where Paul is trying to tell them, look, you guys are getting out of hand with the way you're using this gift, which then was uh, a legitimate gift, right? You're, you're not using it the right way. You're not regulating it. You're not using it in the way it was meant. Uh, and, and you're just, uh, it's becoming a selfish thing, right? That's why he talks about love, right? Love is, love is, uh, is not selfish, right? Uh, love cares for the other person, not for yourself. Uh, and he's saying you're just somehow getting some sense of self-edification because you think you've got this, this cool, shiny gift like what Raven was talking about, right? And so you're better than somebody else, right? So he was actually condemning this whole focus on tongues, which when you look at the charismatic movement today, their focus is entirely on tongues. Uh, and if you don't have tongues, then you're not legitimate and, and so on and so forth, right? So I think, I think we need to, while it's good to understand the theology of it and the thing, we need to, in our own minds, sort of step away from even being worried so much about this, this whole issue of tongues. Okay, I, I believe Satan's brought that into this cause confusion, legitimate, what was a legitimate gift to just, uh, you know, uh, create aberrant versions of it, whether it's the private language or, or whatever, uh, and, and just bring about uh, a lot of um, unedifying activity and, and discussion and so on and so forth. Right? Um, so anyway, that was just my thought on that. Jochen, one, uh, just uh, adding to what Jochen said uh, about, uh, probably about you know, 10 minutes ago, he said, uh, until the last century, uh, there was no revival of tongues. You know, that's absolutely right. Uh, right from first century, the early apostolic fathers and all of that, later, you know, uh, anti-Nicene fathers, if you read the entire church history, until about 1905, I think it was in Topeka, Kansas, uh, it was revived once again. So for about 19 centuries of church history, you don't see tongues being mentioned anywhere in church history. Um, Philip Schaff, I think, has an eight-volume uh, church history. You can go and see that. He, I, I, I mean, if my memory serves me right, I don't think he mentions tongues anywhere until 1905 in Topeka, Kansas, when actually this uh, uh, movement was revived. Um, so I think it is an aberration of things and not the real uh, gift of speaking different kinds of tongues that Paul was mentioning in the New Testament. Uh, that is one thing. Second point is tongues is not a sign of spirituality. Um, so the problem with uh, charismatics today is that there are two levels of Christians that are being, uh, that are being uh, categorized. People who have the tongues is, are the higher level of Christians and people who don't have the tongues are at a lower level in those churches. And uh, they say you should truly desire tongues and speak in tongues. But actually the sign of spirituality or, uh, or the fact that you're filled with the spirit in, is seen in something else uh, is evidenced in Psalms and you know, uh, singing hymns and uh, talking to one another uh, in um, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and all of that. That is a sign of uh, being filled with the Spirit. Uh, hi, Tishana here. Um, I had a question. Uh, so there is another argument that I've heard for speaking in tongues. That's from uh, 1 Corinthians 14 verse 13. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. So I've seen on TV also certain preachers, uh, they speak in tongues and then they uh, translate it to the people and then they say that's okay. Any comments on that? Well, if, if the guy himself interprets, 
why should he even use tongues? The, the real issue is that, you know, Tishana, you have a lot more variations of this. Uh, Paul's intent there is that uh, somebody's given a word in some other language and that is being preached. There are different congregations. For example, that's, uh, in a congregation like ours, we have Hindi going on, translation going on side by side. Okay, so you're speaking, uh, the man who speaks Hindi is not able to communicate with the congregation. There's an interpreter, and that is the sense in which it is being used. If the preacher knows the language of this, it does, uh, of the congregation, uh, why doesn't he speak that? Uh, it goes against what Paul says, uh, I will, when I come to you, I will talk to you something in uh, words that you understand rather than uh, just uh, have my spirit being... Uh, Verse 19. Okay. Would you read that? Uh, yet I, would rather, I, would, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. So that preacher, whoever it is, it would be showcasing his gift and this shininess of that um, gift that he has rather than what the practice that Paul is doing. Somehow, tongues have to be presented. That's the um, sense that one gets out of it. Yeah, uh, just, just to answer, uh, answer uh, Tishana's question just a little more. Um, Paul, again, was there talking about the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues, which existed in the Corinthian church, which they were abusing. And so Paul is saying, if you have the gift of tongues, pray that somebody may interpret it so that others will be edified. You know, it's again for the edification of the church. The message that you're speaking needs to be translated into an intelligible language that a good section of the crowd knows at least. That, that's the point. It's a, it's a very simple point that Paul is making that uh, Rabbi Chan also mentioned about. Uh, here it says, so Raven, what happens to people who practice such things, which are apparently a blatant disregard of scripture? How can they continue walking with the Lord and some even seem to grow in grace and love despite doing it? See, the grace of God is not dependent on, um, on what I am. There are two principles at work that we talk about. One is the principle of retribution. Uh, and there is a principle of grace that is at work. Okay. Uh, the principle of grace is that even though we don't deserve it, God still works. The principle of retribution is you do a bad thing, God gives you a bad thing. You do a good thing, God gives you a good thing. When uh, we have that mindset in our things, we uh, relate each and every blessing in our life uh, to the actions that we have taken. It's, it's not necessarily that. Uh, many a time it is in spite of how we have been, in spite of all that, God is still blessing. And uh, there are people with a lot of misunderstanding and going forward in that misunderstanding, but we still see God blessing them. Sometimes they have, they have the proper understanding and they still go against it, but still God gives grace. So to relate one's spiritual growth, one's blessing in ministry to, um, and, and look at that and uh, make a judgment call on whether or not the practice of that person is right is, uh, is against the principles of the scripture. 
Yeah, actually, I asked a question. Um, it's Sandra over here. Uh, but Abhichan, doesn't that doesn't that uh, make them think that what they are doing is right? So how can God keep um, allowing them and that wrong understanding to go on? So uh, Sandra, last uh, let me use that phrase. How can God? Okay. I look at myself and say, how can God still uh, bear with me and take me forward? Okay, you, sometimes in my life I have gone, I have done things that intentionally have done things against him, mm. and then he still has allowed me to go there and come back. Mm. Uh, God could have prevented all of us from committing sins after we came to the Lord, but you know. If it were my son, I would pull him back. But God, he allows us to go there and do that and then teach. He has his own ways of training and discipling and bringing people up. Uh, we should not put him into our thinking category and say, God will work this way and how can God do that? His principle of grace is, um, uh, is very much seen in uh, our growth, uh, in how he makes us grow in him. There is a comment here that says, perhaps important to highlight people who are polyglots. Uh, polyglots, yes, but uh, that is not, again, the gift of speaking different kinds of tongues because they would have learned that language. Um, just like you know, some of us can speak Kannada, Tamil, Malayalam, English, Hindi, and all of that. So you're a polyglot, but it's something that you've learned over the years. It's, it's not a miraculous gift. So, Rebecca, my question was, uh, now, while I understand uh, what you said about, uh, you know, God's uh, grace and, and not the retribution principle, uh, but isn't that also, uh, you know, reaffirming to that, uh, you know, genuine belief uh, what, what he or she does uh, as against, uh, which is unscriptural, to be scriptural, because you know, they are affirming it because God hasn't uh, intervened or yeah. hasn't proved it. Hmm? Hey, Ravichan, can I just jump in on this? Yes, please. See, I, I, I think we are somehow, uh, you know, I, I, would, I would turn that question around and say, you know, we have so many, forget about tongues, okay? We have so many believers who uh, don't really live for the Lord uh, and they're making a lot of money and, uh, you know, spending on all kinds of things and maybe even doing, you know, things that are not very scriptural. And then they say that it's the blessing of the Lord. I mean, you could even ask yourself, uh, uh, well, isn't the fact that the Lord is not punishing those people, the fact that he's, he's, he's therefore uh, encouraging them to continue in their unscriptural lifestyle. And then they'll even call and have a prayer meeting and see, say, the Lord bless me. You know, I got this, you know, big, huge house that I've made and all this stuff. Right. So I, I think, again, I'll go back to what Richard said. I, I think we need to not worry too much about, you know, whether let God do his business of fixing somebody or bringing them back or straightening them out. You know, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be worried about God's business in this uh, and just worry about our own, own selves. Okay. Go ahead, Richard. Okay. My son had cancer. So was it because I sinned? So, no, I mean, this is specifically regarding uh, gifts only. So as we were discussing purely on the point of, uh, you know, having somebody by virtue of, uh, you know, their understanding, they, you know, considered it to be correct and therefore they practiced it. And, 
you know where they don't have any other method to get corrected see uh, i think jason uh, uh, see we don't know how the lord is intervening in their lives the lord could be you know um, disciplining them and perhaps they don't uh, realize it uh, just like how the lord is disciplining us when we go uh, wrong on other counts so uh, i think from an objective perspective we don't know what's happening in their lives and all of that uh, like george and said i would leave god to be god in this and uh, he will it is his church it is his word and uh, his kingdom program uh, probably in the future he will completely stop it in his sovereignty you never know or it may continue until his coming uh, but i think uh, the lord knows best one size does not fit for all god trains each individual believer in the way that he chooses to at certain points of time he might choose to discipline somebody sometimes he might just leave it and then address it at a uh, different point of time sometimes he doesn't address it at all uh, you know with um, you know when you're in a, when you're an elder in a church you come across lots of um, issues like do we deal with it now or with it later and um, do we actually speak into this man's life about that thing now or just leave it it all depends on the level of the spiritual growth of that person uh, i think um, it is is no comparison but i'm just giving you a small glimpse of uh, the way god operates now he is the great shepherd he is the chief shepherd he knows how to take care of each and every lamb and struggling sheep uh, he is gracious at the same time he wants them to be transformed in his likeness so there's a there's a process in someone else's life that i don't understand i need to understand how he is dealing with me